This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? In the beginning, the end. So where to start? Good morning, Anne-Marie. Good morning, Tonio. My guest today is Anne-Marie Keppel. Mm -hmm. She's the author of Death Nesting, Ancient and Modern Death Doula Techniques, Mindfulness Practices, and Herbal Care. So you call yourself a death doula. What is a death doula? Yes, that's a very good question. That is the that is the question. <laughs> so people have different understandings of what a death doula is, mainly because the job of a death doula is not defined in a way that um, there's no governing body. So it's not recognized federally or by the state as an actual profession. So some people refer to death doulas, they'll say that, it's a non-medical holistic caregiver. And that's a great way of explaining it. But I think as soon as you say non-medical, it's almost like a disclaimer. So I think that those are the organizations that are trying to or hoping to professionalize what a death doula is and does. So for me, I'm a little bit more grassroots. So the explanation that I usually give for a death doula is it's an individual who wants to help create or maintain an environment that feels comfortable to die in. So that's much more broad, right? So that encompasses so many different things. And that's why I don't like to use the non-medical word in there. So we can help with people. We can help create schedules because when somebody is dying, things can get very chaotic. We We'll sit with an individual who is dying. We'll engage in these conversations with family members or the one who is dying to help bring into the conversation different aspects of comfort. Like, how do you feel comfortable? What's comfortable to you? And sometimes people don't actually know. They haven't thought of some of these things before. So just engaging in the conversation helps to kind of expand the possibilities of what dying could look like to make sure that it's not so scary. But we also can help with paperwork, helping to make sure that advanced directives are in order, that they've named their executor for their will. And so there's a great deal, like many, many things that a death doula could do. But as far as like having a checklist, 
You're not going to be able to check all of those things off when you're working with somebody who's dying. Maybe you'll only be able to check off one or two of those things. You mean because there there won't be enough time? Yeah, either because there won't be enough time because they are maybe now just thinking of end-of-life arrangements, even though... You know, they may only have a few weeks to live. They might be literally in the active phases of dying and have never thought about these things before. But just emotionally, it takes a lot to make these considerations, you know, to engage in this work. It really is work considering your mortality and everything that has to be in place. And so there can be barricades all over the place along the way that you're just, as a death doula, you're not going to be able to help move every single barricade in order to create this ideal death. But we can try. So in our culture, we don't talk about death. We tend to avoid thinking about death. So my guess is that most people are far from prepared to deal with all of these things, especially, as you say, in the last few weeks of their life. And of course, when people are dying and they find out that they're dying, they're going through all kinds of internal issues as well. So it sounds like your job can be very complicated and challenging. It's as if you're dealing with like a storm of issues all at once. Yeah. You know, the thing is, I'm not dealing with the storm of issues. They are dealing with the storm of issues. So I'm the one who would try to create a little bit of sanity. You know, there are so many considerations just you know, paperwork alone is chaotic. And then your own emotions and your family members' emotions. And so really what a death doula should do is enter into the situation and try and make sense of one piece at a time. And if there's a total blockade like around, you know, like a certain family member, leave that alone. You know, we don't want to create any more tension. We don't want to create any more anxiety. If something is just like clearly out of our hands, leave it alone and work with what is possible. So we want to help the situation. And sometimes that means actually stepping back. And, you know, who invited the death doula in is one of the big... Because um, that's a huge step. Yeah. That's already stepping way outside of the traditional American approach to death and dying. Yes. So who invited that person in? Was it the person who was dying? Well, that's wonderful. That means that they have accepted that they're dying, first of all. And so if it's a family member, let's say it's the child of somebody who's dying, well, does the person who's dying want the assistance of a death doula? They might not. So already you've come to an interesting situation. And at that point, you can support the person who invited you in. And so you may not end up working with the person who's dying at all. But my goal personally is to empower the family and friends of the one who is dying to care for their own person who's dying. You know, a lot of death doulas are trained to, you know, not come in with like, you know, a cape billowing behind us and here comes the death doula and they're going to make everything better. Super death doula. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. And if I can remain invisible, I'm doing my job. Because you, you can't be there all the time, whereas the family, they will be there all the time. Hopefully. Or yeah. much more of the time. Yeah. So a death doula can step in and out too. So they can come sit vigil or when the family, let's say they all want to go out for dinner or there's an occasion, a death doula can come in very much like a hospice volunteer, like a respite worker can come do that too. But my interest in working with people who are dying and also 
the dead is to actually improve our planet, to improve our society and our culture. There's a lot of things that change when you're working with somebody who's dying and your your heart really like breaks open. And there's so much that you recognize about your own mortality and it's just, it's completely invaluable. So to continually find somebody from outside to offer this care is not helping anybody actually. You know, how is that improving our community? Like if you're completely hands off with the one who's dying and you just have this other individual who comes in and this is what they do and they know how to do it and you can go back to your life and you don't have to worry about it. Dying changes people, it changes lives, it changes everything. So when I go into a situation, when I'm asked for my advice or just how to help, I try to empower the person as much as possible. So most of the time, I'm not actually asked back. I'm not actually asked to be there. And that is wonderful. That's great. (laughs) So that's the perfect scenario that people have gotten what they need from you as like an advisor in this whole process. You're kind of mediating between life and death for both the person who's dying and for the family members or people who are there to care for them because they probably don't really know what to do or what to expect or what the options are and what they should be doing and what they can be doing. Yeah, so it's really just encouraging them and saying, it's okay, this is so awkward, you're going to fumble through this, you're not going to know what to do, try it out anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Give it overall. And I'll I'll be here if you (laughs) have any questions. Exactly. And then that's wonderful because people have been caring for people since the very first, you know, child that was born on this planet, the very first baby, there was the first birth and there was the first death. I mean, this this is nothing new. So... The problem is we've lost touch with a lot of these things and we no longer have confidence in these things and we don't see people dying. You know, there are plenty of countries and war-torn lands where they see plenty of people dying. We don't here in the U.S. and in Canada. So we have our old and dying people tucked away and, you know. And getting more and more tucked away all the time, it seems. Oh, yeah. Grandma, grandpa, or, you know, even a, a terminally ill younger person, they're, for the most part, they're not at home, although many of them would like to be. But for many, many reasons, it's not possible always. In fact, most of the time, it's not possible. And I don't want to say that there's never a need for somebody to be there all the time, because there is. So professionalization and destulas entering hospitals and nursing homes can be a, a very good thing. We need more healthcare workers. And there is a need for a certain amount of training in that realm. But for the most part, my personal goal is to help people at home. And, you know, even at home, if there are people who don't have a partner or a spouse, and they don't have children, and they live by themselves, well, then when they're dying, that creates a very interesting dilemma. You know, they want to die at home, but how? You know, so one individual that I worked with, I actually coordinated all of the care, so the entire schedule. There was no, um, like I could encourage the community to rally around this individual, which is perfect, and that's what happened. But there was no central person, so I was that central person. And it ended up being an incredibly beautiful care system of family, well, family visiting, actually. Her family lived outside of the state, but of friends and community that rallied and all the way through to disposition, all the way through to burial. So in that situation, there was no stepping out. 
there was nobody to pass it off to. So for people who don't have any money or financial resources, how, what are the challenges in that way? Oh my gosh. You know, it is so sad, but money is so much. (laughs) Money is so much of everything. You know, it's exhausting. I have been so poor before and I am not poor now. And you know, poor means different things to different people, but it's hard to gain any perspective or have any headspace when finances, like when money is your main concern. So in relation to dying, it plays a tremendous role and it's hard. Especially if you don't have local family members or family members who want to participate. Mm Because some people just run for the hills. Oh, yeah. Not everybody feels like they can handle that. No. That's a scary thing in itself that puts you face to face with your own mortality. Yep. So this death nesting, one of the things you talk about in the book is that it's more than just, you know, preparing for the physical aspect of dying, but also preparing your life as well. That death nesting is much more than just the physical environment or the logistics, the paperwork, you know, arranging the funeral or arranging hospice care or hospital care or home care, whatever it might be. That there's a kind of preparation where you actually incorporate it into your own day-to-day life and approach to life, including death into it, that it's, a, it's an awareness thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My life improved substantially when I started incorporating death into it on a regular basis, but to different degrees for a long time. I mean, in high school, I was, I loved like Harold and Maude. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted a hearse. And I definitely sat in the background of a couple of funerals at the cemeteries. <laughs> but I guess so part of it is just maturity and age and just watching my body change and watching people that I love that are getting older. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're getting older. You know, when you're younger, you're like, that person's old, that person's young. And then as you get older, you see all these varying degrees. So, Things have just become so much more beautiful in terms of noticing time. You know, there's this funny meme out there right now that says, the year 2000 was just 20 years ago. But that's so funny because 1980 was just 20 years ago also. (laughs) And I think that you lose track of time. But then when you start to pay attention to time again, like by recognizing your own mortality and your family and friends aging and you know, the number of deaths that begin adding up, it tends to slow things back down again in a really beautiful way where you're noticing life cycles. But so many people don't want to do that. They don't want to look at those things at all. And, you know, there's Botox and you can dye your hair and you can do all of these manipulative things to your body to try and deceive. And there's the whole life extension movement, which is all about living forever. I mean, the people who actually believe that science is going to eliminate death. Yeah. Um, what a catastrophe that would be for this planet <laughs> if everybody just kept living. Oh, no, we need to die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we need to die out in a big way <laughs> to, to make room for, uh, for some other possibilities. You mentioned that becoming aware of death 
and dying has made your life so much better. Could you talk about how it's changed your life and enriched your life? Yeah. Well, for one, it's harder for me to stay mad at people. Like if I'm angry at someone, it's really hard to hold a grudge anymore. I definitely get upset. (laughs) I get mad at people. But it's very fleeting. I'm like, does this really matter, Anne-Marie? No. Clearly, this is, you know, somebody forgot to flush the toilet. I'm sure everything's going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I remind myself more often to look around, to look at the sky, to like feel my feet on the ground, to be thankful that my body is not in pain. You know, there's so many people that have physical pain all the time. And so just being aware of my body and feeling gratitude for not having any pain at the moment. The fact that my lungs work, I can inhale, I can exhale, I can think. I mean, these are actually phenomenal. They're miracles. And if you don't slow down enough and if you don't think about those things not working with nothing to compare it to, you just kind of forget. You know, I think that we're depriving ourselves of life by not contemplating death. Mm -hmm. When I was in my late teens, I was reading Carlos Castaneda, are you familiar? Mm -hmm. And there's this wonderful thing where Don Juan tells him to use death as an advisor, that death sits on your left shoulder and anytime you're concerned about anything or upset about something, just ask death, you know, is this really that important? You know, in the face of death, how important is this really? It's perfect. I mean, what else is there to compare it to? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what other faster, more serious way is there to drive that home? <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, dealing with death and all these issues is really tricky. I mean, it's another part of life, and we're all struggling with pretty much everything in our lives. I mean, that's the process of life is, is learning to navigate things and to come to terms with everything. And one of the things that I found the most profound and moving in this book was this practice that you share at the beginning of the book, this gentleness, mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. So I would love for you to talk about that and why that's so, so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is, I called it the core practice. If you're going to be helping other people die, you need to contemplate your own mortality as deeply as possible, as thoroughly as possible. Otherwise, you're just trying to help somebody else. This is somebody else's situation. There is a way for you to kind of cross over where we can kind of meet as mortal beings and not so much differentiate between this is happening to you and this is my role. So in order to really be able to recognize somebody else's basic goodness and just the quality of love that they should have for themselves while they're dying, you should have that for yourself. You should have that so firmly established in yourself. And this is ongoing. It's not like you can just like create a little box and check it off and you're like, done. (laughs) I feel great now. So death nesting is really like imagining yourself as an infant, as a brand new baby. So you've just been born in whatever way that you were born whether it's a vaginal birth or a cesarean section birth, somehow you came out of the womb. But even that is different. 
everybody has a different story on how they came from inside their mother's body to outside their mother's body. So from right then, really getting in touch with how that baby, how you felt from the very first moment, the sounds that you heard, the lights that you saw, the touch that you felt on your body, the temperature. So all of these different things that we were completely overwhelmed with the moment we were born. And I know what it feels like to have a baby, and I can't imagine that it's pain-free for the baby when they're being born. I think it's very scary, (laughs) perhaps. I mean, I don't know. Well, it must be because it's so intense for the mother. Well, yes, exactly. And the two are connected. (laughs) Exactly. And the environment is completely erupting. The environment is completely changing. So having compassion for that little being, for yourself as a baby from that very first moment, and then imagining your infant self in your hand, you as you are now at 40 years old, at 60 years old, at 20 years old, however old you are right now, and you have this little tiny being that's you in the palm of your hand and having compassion for yourself in that state, understanding that nothing was within your control, nothing. You were reliant upon everything around you to take care of you, and they might not have taken very good care of you. So having compassion for your situation and what you went through even from that very first breath, all through your childhood, all through your adolescence, your young 20s. And so all of these different situations, all of these times that you have had hardships, you have felt saddened, you have hurt somebody intentionally or unintentionally. And just knowing that that has been your entire story, your whole story. So the meditation or the contemplation is to hold yourself like in the palm of your hand while you go through all of that. And it might take a very long time. You know, you might be able to sit and do this for like two hours. And while you're doing this, you place your other cupped palm over the top of your other one. So you're creating like a little nest, like a little egg, and you have yourself in there and you're just sending love and compassion and forgiveness and trust and just trying to accept and find comfort in your story. And so by doing that and by opening the gateway for that amount of compassion to be offered to yourself, you're going to be gentle on yourself. You'll be more kind to yourself. You'll recognize perhaps the next time you have some kind of automatic reaction and you don't like it, to first be gentle with yourself and then correct it to how you would like it to go. And those kinds of things will help you on your deathbed. If you've done these things in advance, you'll be able to be more gentle with yourself. And in turn, let's say you're doing this while you're quite healthy, in turn, you can do that for the person that you're working with or that you're the caregiver for or other people. Once you've done that for yourself and you do it enough and you really get in touch with it, it's very hard to then define like who's a bad guy because, you know, you've touched into those places in yourself where you're like, well... That was definitely wrong or bad, but I know this happened because of all of these other things. And it really just, you know, kept building and building. And then this happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to all this awareness? I mean, how did you become so wise? I'm not. I don't know anything. <laughs> but you've learned a lot. I mean, this practice, this core practice is like a centerpiece of your work. 
it seems. I mean, it's one thing to learn something, but it's a whole nother thing to actually bring it into our being, make it part of us and our work. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably the biggest lessons are my pains. I mean, Basically, if there's something in me that's causing me pain, I want to look at it. I want to know it. I want to know how it got there because I don't want that in me. And it's not like it's time to get rid of it. It's time to like look at it and go deeper into it and you grow from it. So you didn't get rid of it. Instead, you can acknowledge it's there and say, thanks. Glad you showed up. That really sucked. (laughs) But I've incorporated that now into something that's healing for me, and I can offer this to other people. So part of what happened is, first of all, one of my biggest challenges is I had my first child when I was 19 years old. And like every woman giving birth that doesn't have any medications, it was an extreme pain. And at one point, I realized that I had to, like, let go. I was, like, holding so tight. You know, scared. You're like, I want the baby out, but I don't want the baby out because does that mean more pain or does that mean it'll be over with sooner? Or like, what is this? What's going to happen? You know, and I had read all of these things like, okay, imagine a beautiful blooming lotus. And I'm like, okay, lotus, my foot. I'm like, this hurts. But I realized I'm like, I don't have any other choice, actually. I either, you know, do this, let go, release, or what? There was no other choice. And so I let go. I let go of everything to the point where I just completely went into the pain. I didn't pull away from, I didn't do anything. I just went deeper, 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 deeper into the pain. And I found no pain there. It was actually just sensation. There was no longer pain. And when my baby was born, I asked my mom, I was holding my sweet little baby boy in my arms. And I was like, mom, I had a birth plan that I wanted it dark and I wanted people to whisper. I wanted to like reduce the shock of the environment as much as possible for my baby. Why were the lights so bright in here? And my mother said, no, Anne-Marie. She's like, your midwife was using a dimmed headlamp. (laughs) She could barely see. And I thought that was impossible because the room had been filled with light. It was so bright. Like even when I closed my eyes, I don't know if my eyes were open or closed, but it was brilliant white and there was no pain. But that was the first time that I realized that you can actually go into pain. And, you know, I won't speak for people who are in constant pain and everybody's situation is unique. So this was temporary. And I don't want to minimize some people have endless amounts of pain. But it was the first time that I realized that this is possible. What was the original question? (laughs) (laughs) How did you become so wise, so so experienced? Where did all this wisdom of gentleness and how did this become a life work and passion for you? Yeah, I have to credit a lot of that to the community that I lived in after I was divorced. So first of all, I grew up with new age parents. So it's pretty easy for me to talk about self-love because I have always had that. And so that's incredibly fortunate. Obviously, I have had to work with a great deal of things. I have had a lot of, you know, sadnesses and some traumas, but I can touch into that because, you know, in a lot of ways, my childhood was not violated. And so... I know that it exists. I know that it's possible. So I like to try and offer this to other people to try and get in touch with that part of them that can really be kind to themselves. So I did have a lot of support growing up. 
But even then, I mean, I was by myself a lot. I was in the forest by myself a lot. Like my childhood was not like with doting parents and I had everything given to me. No, it was pretty much like I was out in the forest. (laughs) My sisters were quite a bit older than me, so they weren't around all that much. And I just loved being outside. And so that's how I have such a strong connection to nature. But, you know, I was comfortable with myself, but then you have to deal with everybody else as an adult. So then there's like so many other pains and influences. And so I've always been able to retreat into myself and find comfort there. But then how do you find comfort in the outside world when all of these other things are impacting you and oh my gosh, you have to deal with car insurance and you have to deal with, you know, like all well, of Well, just these, other like, human beings. Yes, yes. <laughs> and the closer you get to them, the more complicated it gets. Oh, it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so I really had to find a community when I was newly divorced and my children were tiny and I had been like homeschooling them and they came with me to work and I was very, very close with them. They were with me all the time. And then being divorced, they were with their dad part of the time. And I was lost. And I'm like, what do I do with myself? And, you know, people my own age either didn't have families yet, or they were totally free, like going on vacation, or they're graduating from college or doing all these great expansive things. And I was so heartbroken and felt so alone. And the people that could have related to me were much older, you know, like, at least 10, 15, 20, maybe even 30 years older than me that were going through like this kind of midlife crisis, although I was having it when I was in my mid-20s. So I had to find a community of people that supported my like spiritual beliefs, which were really rich and wonderful, but that also acknowledged that life is really hard and sad. And how do we work with our sadnesses on a regular basis, even moment to moment? And so that was through the Buddhist community of Karma Choling in Barnet, Vermont. And it was the right mixture of people. They were age 18 to 85, and they all were there for the same reason. So they wanted to learn how their mind worked. They wanted to learn to pay attention to their neuroses. They wanted to learn how to find comfort in their own pain and how to transform that to a a way that feels workable (laughs) and maybe even comfortable. And so it was great. So for the first time, it was a community that didn't tell me to cheer up. In fact, they said, oh, yeah, this might be around forever. And I was like, what? (laughs) You're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say, oh, don't worry. It'll be okay. You'll find somebody else. You're just, you know, let me set you up on a date or, you know, your kids will be fine. And so at first I was a little confused, but it also felt right. I was like, okay, that sounds more real than anything else I was getting in the outside world. So I do give credit to that organization. It's the work of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And I'm incredibly thankful. Pema Chodron also, I, you know, I'd known Pema even before I entered this community. I'd known her books and her work. My mother had introduced me to her. So I already had some idea of what I was getting into. I didn't just jump in there cold. Yeah. Yeah. Pema Chodron kind of saved my life like about 15 years ago after my life fell apart, you know, the end of a relationship. Her book, aptly titled, When Things Fall Apart. Yes, it's a very good title. <laughs> <laughs> and I've recommended it to other people, and, and they all say, oh, this book saved my life. So mm-hmm. it's really powerful stuff. And I was reading Chogun Trungpa Rinpoche back in the 70s. He was blazing a trail back then. Mm-hmm. There's a line in the book that you've been 
time and space traveling since your earliest memories. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious to hear about your experiences with that and how they have come to serve you in this work. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, I used to um, I used to astral project all the time as a child. And, you know, my parents just said, oh, cool, good for you. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't say, no, Anne-Marie, that's not. You were just dreaming. They said, oh, wow, what did you do? Where did you go? And mostly I would just go visit my neighbor up the road. (laughs) (laughs) I had a little friend up there. How old were you? Oh, gosh. I was living in Craftsbury, so, I mean, I knew I was doing it before then. But, you know, when you're in a dream state... It's hard to remember when you wake up. So from this time period, I was about eight years old. Yeah, I gauge my early strange otherworldly experiences by the house or the the apartment I was living in at the time. Definitely. That's exactly what I just did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I I can totally relate to that. And and also that's why I'm, I'm really curious about this. Yeah. So I think, first of all, that blows so many standard beliefs out of the water, right? So that you can actually leave your body and not die and then come back again. So I knew that was possible. And then, I mean, when you know that that's possible because you did it and you remember, then what else is possible? And so it's a it's a beautiful way of being able to look at things from different angles. So I'm constantly asking myself, what am I missing? Mm-hmm. Or what else is possible? What else is possible? Right. What huge dimension of the universe am I missing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, all of the other, like, very large percentage of our brain that, you know, supposedly does nothing. <laughs> What's going on? I mean, yeah, so, so I try to look at things always from different angles and even from different perspectives from different even inanimate objects, like just look at things like, what do I look like, you know, from a rock? <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but I mean, just just working with your environment constantly and accepting that your view is not the only view. And also that our our view can be so much more expansive mm-hmm. than, than it normally is. Yeah. 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 And so when I think of like how it helps me now, so if let's say I'm, I'm going to contemplate my own death. I can think about that pretty easily from two different perspectives. So I can imagine myself laying in bed and I'm dying and I can imagine different sensations in my body and I can imagine what I'm hearing or not hearing or smelling or not smelling. So I can imagine what it would be like to be dying. Then I can see myself laying there on the bed and I'm standing perhaps off the bed, and then I can observe what's happening to my dying body. And from there, I can wonder, what is the body seeing? What is the body smelling? What is the body hearing? Because I don't know anymore, right? I'm looking at it. So those those are just like the sensations. And then from there, you can do that, what am I thinking? So go back to the body laying in bed, and I'm thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm going to miss my children. Are they going to be okay? Will I be remembered for how long? Have I done anything beneficial to help the world, my family, my community? And then when I step out of that and then I'm observing my body, I can think, what is she thinking about? Is she worried? Is she sad? Is she just fine? Is she looking forward to what's next? Like you don't know these things. So 
having the ability to swap in and out of those two positions will help you when you're working with somebody who's dying. So there are those two perspectives. But then let's take a bigger perspective. And so then there are a couple different ways. I mean, it's endless the amount of ways you can look at this. But let's look at the bigger, bigger picture. Observe yourself observing yourself. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, that's incredibly beautiful. What a beautiful, caring, well-intentioned situation, right? And then if you begin to have any fears about where you might go or what you're going to be left out of, what you're going to be missing when your consciousness is detaching from your body, you can begin to feel like kind of left out or you feel sad, you feel like you're no longer a part of what you have known. But imagine then that you turn around And that's what you're being incorporated into. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So if your perspective is just on the body and just on you dying, well, you feel really left out. But literally, turn around. like Because you're being incorporated into something else. Right. So when you're facing one direction, you're seeing this world that we've inhabited all our lives. And so what you're talking about is turning around and looking in a different direction, which... Some people may find impossible to imagine, but because of your experience, it comes very naturally. And I'm talking with Anne-Marie Keppel. She's the author of Death Nesting, Ancient and Modern Death Doula Techniques, Mindfulness Practices, and Herbal Health Care. And she is a death doula. So this thing of perspective is so profound. I would love for you to continue wherever we were. (laughs) (laughs) Tonio, I'm so glad that you're on the same page with me that we can just kind of ask each other back and forth. What were we talking about? So yeah, there's a lovely visualization, which is the teacup in space. And what I like to imagine it as is as an orb. So like imagining a glass orb in space and it's filled with space and it's space all around it. Mm -hmm. And then if you were to either break or take away the glass orb, Mm -hmm. what remains? And actually nothing has changed at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The space that was inside of you is now incorporated into more space. So it's just the shell that's actually gone. So to me, that feels really comforting. To some people that might not feel comforting. Everybody is so unique. It's such a beautiful metaphor for our own awareness, consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that feels so relieving to me. Yeah. So (laughs) I'm curious, because you had these out-of-body experiences, I don't know if you really traveled out of this world, because you said mostly you went to visit your neighbor, (laughs) but did it give you a perspective beyond this world that, that made it easy for you to see beyond the confines of or the narrow range of this world and then in addition to that how it helps you think of death like where we may be heading or where we are heading on the other side yeah it's not a deep question at all is it (laughs) (laughs) so um why why mess around (laughs) So 
first of all, death is boggling. It's it's <laughs> mind boggling. It is mind boggling, and it makes me think. I have to laugh that you know some of the death doula trainings. The death doula trainings are all over the place because there's no governing body, as I said before. A death doula training can be two days or it can be 14 weeks. I did the 14-week one spread out over 14 weeks. And so the question that just came up on a forum recently said, how do we get all these death doulas on the same page so that we know that they're going to be doing good work and they're not going to be bringing their own stuff into this? And I'm like, you will never know. You will never, ever, ever know. And everybody's going to bring their own stuff into (laughs) it, too. Of course they are. (laughs) And we're talking about the most profound enigma in human existence. I mean, death, it's just, there's no recipe for like, okay, this is how you do it nicely, and this is how you assist. It's just impossible. So, And also, every experience of death and dying is different for everybody. Absolutely. So... The notion of a one-size-fits-all approach is ludicrous mm-hmm. and seems like the best thing you can do is to prepare people for the immensity of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and finding comfort in that. You yeah. know, like even right now when we don't know the answer to something, we can look it up on our phone. We can look it up and like, oh, look, there's the answer. So it's becoming even less acceptable not to know something. You know, I'll even find myself saying, you don't know that, like, go look it up. Like, mm-hmm. But so there's no space for not knowing. And I think we have a hard time not knowing. And that's pretty natural, too. Like, we, we want the name of something, you know. Even, like, if we have an illness and we don't know what's wrong with us, a lot of times people feel so much better once they're given a name. They're like, oh, okay, that's what it is. Even if the answer's not great. Or, <laughs> oh, I'm going to die. Right. Thank God I know what... I'm yeah, at, at least I, yeah, isn't that <laughs> ironic? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you can panic after that. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, there's there's plenty of time for making all kinds of monstrous situations out of our mortality. So, yeah, getting comfortable with not knowing, I think, is really important. What does that feel like? Can you love yourself through not knowing? Where is your, I call it in the book, like secret nesting? Like, where is that place in you that is okay no matter what? And everybody has it. And for some people, it's easier to find than others. And, you know, I'm actually going to retract that right away and say perhaps some people who are truly clinically depressed, maybe they can't find that secret place where everything is okay no matter what. Yeah, that is a bold statement because Mm -hmm. I've had that experience, but I've also, you know, we all have many experiences of feeling completely disconnected from that Mm -hmm. place Mm -hmm. when we probably felt like we needed it most. Mm -hmm. So it's a shifting thing. Yeah, and I guess it depends on so much, but if you have found it once in your life and then you can tap back into that again. You know, if you can find it once in your life, try to remember it, try to capture it, try to remember like where you felt it in your body. Did you feel it in your heart? And that's where your safety was. Did you feel it in your gut? And that's where your safety was. Was it right between your eyes? You know, try to actually physically place it in your body and make yourself remember it. So when you need it, you can go there again. So one of the big challenges of death is fear fear of the unknown, fear of what's on the other side, or the classic Western thing is fear of 
complete obliteration of absolute nothingness, that inconceivable nothingness. I remember as a child deeply contemplating that and being deeply terrified by that. (laughs) And I think that was the genesis of a series of experiences that I had as I was going to sleep every night, where I would find myself in absolute darkness. I mean, deep, 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 dark, 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 dark. And then I would like rocket up through these layers of darkness. And then at the end of that experience, literally leap out of bed gasping for breath. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what, how did you feel when you were there? Was it, what did you feel like? In it? Yes. You mean before I, I started? Yeah. Before the impulse to rock it out? You know, I haven't actually thought of that. that. From where I am right now, feeling into it, it feels totally peaceful and fine. <laughs> well, I think you just solved the mystery, <laughs> Thank Antonio. You. Thank you. <laughs> I think you actually just proved that we'll all be okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's proof. I don't know if it's proof. And I don't know if, if, if anybody else will, will be comforted by that. Mm-hmm. No, somebody will. You know, it's all so unique. Some people feel like they will be, they're going to go to heaven. And it's like, you know, the pearly gates and welcome and all of your ancestors are there and all the relatives, all the people. So some people have that as their vision. And some people have nothing. There's nothing. There's darkness. And how you feel in that darkness or how you feel in that heavenly state, that's what matters, right? So it doesn't necessarily matter where you think you're going, if you're going anywhere at all, if you have any knowing after you die, but how you relate to that. Like what is going to, what brings comfort? What does comfort feel like in that place where you think you might be going? And a lot of people stop before then. So they'll contemplate dying and then they'll contemplate you know, being dead, but they don't always go the next step. They're like, whoa, okay, back up and, you know, retract and come back to here in this present moment instead of imagining there. But you have to kind of trust, right? So if you don't have this trust that it's okay, then it's very scary, you know? So it's interesting to talk with people about this no matter what stage they're in, where do you think you're going to go? Or what do you think happens after death? Because not everybody thinks they're going someplace. You know. And what does that mean, going to a place anyway? Mm-hmm. I'm sure you must have heard stories of people who've had near-death experiences and had their experience of meeting God and being in a place that felt like heaven, where there was like this unspeakable love. Mm-hmm. What's your sense about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, me personally? Yeah. I'm not worried. <laughs> oh, for yourself? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I'm. I mean, see, in relation to those stories, you know, that experience that people come back with. I believe that, oh boy, you know, this is tricky. My beliefs kind of change all the time. So for me, I'm not scared of after death. I feel very sad about leaving. I love it here. I want to stay here. That part is very sad. But as far as 
me or the essence of me and where I'm going or not going is pure bliss. So I, I have confidence where... So where does that sense of pure bliss come from? Is that an experiential thing on some level? Oh my gosh, I have no idea. You know, I I think that... Because think, you say that with such certainty. Yeah. <laughs> where does that certainty come from? That's a good question. I... I have no idea. I mean, I guess I don't know. I, I don't know even know if I should try to figure it out. But I mean, when you feel into it, where does that mm-hmm. come from? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like when you asked me, like, in that deep darkness, what did I feel mm-hmm. when I was there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind I, of the reverse, but... It could be exactly the same mm-hmm. is the thing. But I may visualize white and you may visualize black. You said it was peaceful. It was like emptiness, but not a cold emptiness. It's like the classic Buddhist paradox of emptiness and fullness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The emptiness is completely full because emptiness is impossible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I think is a wonderful metaphor for, for the notion of death. Uh-huh. Yeah. If you can wrap your mind around that. Yes. Or if you can let go of trying to wrap your mind around that. Yes, exactly. Well, Buddhism is filled with all kinds of fun things like that. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is no other than form. <laughs> it's just not all times. So I, I guess it's just a, a sense of trust. And so if I have that trust, I can help others try to come to a place of trust. I don't have to know what it is that they necessarily envision, but if I can help bring them to a place that is of a place that's very trusting, then I can't imagine a better offering to give somebody on their deathbed or as they're leading up to their deathbed or even in their waking, moving, healthy life. Like if I can offer any kind of peace at all. Even a shard, even the possibility for them to go investigate themselves. It's like you're modeling, you're modeling it as if you've been there. And even though you haven't really been there, there's a quality of that in, in your presence. That if somebody is open and receptive, we'll feel that. It's kind of that, that resonance thing. Mm-hmm. Well... If I can help people, like more more people, doesn't that make all all of this work to some degree is is almost selfish, right? So if I can help other people feel good, feel like confident in dying, then it ripples out, right? And it makes everything better. It it makes people better. They'll be kinder. They'll be gentler. They'll be more forgiving. So it starts with like each individual, like just just that one person, but then maybe they can offer that to somebody else. So I want to live in a place where people are kind and nice and generous and people flare up and they're like, oh, that person's flaring up. <laughs> you know, just like recognize it or say, oh, there's that without having an emotional reaction back at them again. I mean, we all fall into it, but if I have offered that generosity, like this kind of generosity to somebody, then they can offer that back to me so that when I'm not thinking clearly, when I'm upset about something, they're like, oh, okay, you're doing this right now. I'll either step back or is there anything I can do? 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a way, it's like it's all give and take, right? And we all just have to keep helping each other do this life. <laughs> Sharing space. Sharing space. And holding space mm-hmm. when, when we lose that perspective of spaciousness. Because mm-hmm. that, to me, in my worst, darkest moments are when I forget that I exist in space. When I have that sort of sense that I'm completely separate and alone and deeply isolated and completely cut off, that's like no space. Mm-hmm. Which is a kind of a strange metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, if you can recognize that, that about yourself, it happens to lots of other people too. Everybody, like, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> right. I think of the, the Buddhist Tonglen practice. Mm-hmm. And there's like two aspects of it. The most common aspect is the one where you're taking on other people's pain and transmuting it. But then there's the other aspect, which is recognizing that whatever it is that I'm feeling in this moment, there are millions of people all over the world that are feeling that as well, if not more so. Absolutely. And that's actually a, a beautiful part of... Buddhist practices. So when you, let's say I help this one person who is dying or has died, and I'm able to, I have the resources, I have the capability, I have the intelligence to care for that person. Well, wasn't that an amazing gift? And may that kind of care be possible throughout the world. May that kind of generosity and offering and kindness be given to everyone. And it's so instead of holding on to it and say, oh, I did such a good job. You know, I helped this person. I did X, Y, and Z. You actually take that feeling of love, even accomplishment, just everything, and give it away. Mm-hmm. Let it ripple out yes. freely. Give it away. Yeah. Don't ever hold on to anything. Just keep, keep it going. Keep it going. Keep everything moving. And in that way, we support each other. And it keeps you from feeling like having highs and lows, from feeling really elated to feeling really depressed. If you keep things moving in like a more neutral zone, you're not going to have as much quote unquote burnout. Yeah. This is a, a really interesting thing that I learned about 10, 12 years ago that it's as wonderful to release positive things in our life as it is to release the things that we want to get rid of. (laughs) I think it's actually the only way to do this. Yeah. I mean, you can't just let go of one without the other, but we still do that. I Mm -hmm. mean, we always cling to the things that we like Mm -hmm. and we try to push away the things that we don't like. Mm -hmm. And the universe doesn't seem to work that way. (laughs) No. No. No, in fact, the harder you cling to things, the more you try to hoard and keep, well, the more rigid you get and the more things will become upsetting. And of course, the things that we try to push away just stick to us even more. Oh, yes. And that's one of the hardest. You know, and and figuring out how to do this, well, that's all a trick. Like, that's all, oh boy, it takes a lot of surrender over and over and over and over again, a lot of surrender, a lot of like, you know, vulnerabilities that you have to become in touch with. And then finding strength in the surrender and in the vulnerability and being like, wow, that's actually a superpower because <laughs> I can never actually have something taken from me. I can never actually be truly given anything. And when you can kind of accept that and, and engage in that free flow, then you're free. 
you're completely free. But surrendering to those things is really, really difficult, and it takes practice. And it's something that we have to continually do in each moment. Yep. Like I said, you cannot ever check off right, that you box. Don't, yeah, it's like continually walking that razor's edge all the time. Yeah, you could, you could fight against doing the dishes. You know, you could do the dishes and be like, I am done with doing the dishes, but there's going to be more. Right. <laughs> so, and it's okay to do that, too. Yeah. <laughs> you can be gentle with yourself when you say, screw it, I'm not... Uh, right. But then at least you can say, I'm really angry doing the dishes right now. Yeah. And you recognize, I'm like, okay, because it never went away. There's always more dishes to do. Right. Uh, just kind of move them through. And then after a little while, you realize it's not that big of a deal. Right. And even the <laughs> anger isn't that big of a deal. Like if we have a stigma against anger, like, oh, I shouldn't be angry. Oh, that's terrible of me. I'm this peace-loving person and I'm getting angry. How horrible. Oh, I can't live with myself. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. we can. We can be gentle with ourselves with that, too. Mm-hmm. More freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I even try to be careful when, when sometimes people say, like, Anne-Marie, you do such good work. You're so this. You're so that. I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. I, <laughs> I can make a list of all the things that I do that are not what you think I am. Just just let it go. Like I was saying before, we like to try and like know things. And including people, we like to try to know a person. But it's not that easy. And those other things, those things that we think less of, are actually, I think, the things that enrich us even more. It's, it's an alchemical thing. We take the crap. It's that composting or turning lead into gold kind of thing. You have to st- start by acknowledging the lead. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to have that lead in your hands to work with before you can start, you know, transmuting it into anything else. And that can be a really difficult thing to sit there holding that mm-hmm. big, stinky, steaming pile in your hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. 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 And some people have so much of that, you know, and it's not their fault. <laughs> and it's not, it's you not know, even bad. You can, it's no. wonderful. Well, well, yes, yes, it can be. But some people, their life is so, so hard, so difficult, so many different things. And to try and get out of that headspace can be, it's a lot of work. And, you know, we're not always given easy things. We have these environments, we have these challenges, we have social challenges, we have racial challenges, we have economic challenges. So not everybody's on equal footing to find this, you know, acceptance of the way things are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I've enjoyed this conversation so much. My guest has been Anne-Marie Keppel. She's the author of Death Nesting, Ancient and Modern Death Doula Techniques, Mindfulness Practice, and Herbal Care. Anne-Marie, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I love the story of a conversation at an English country house at a dinner party where the hostess started up the question of death and asked the various guests what they thought was going to happen to them when they die. And some thought about reincarnation, and others thought about various kinds of uh, uh, different planes of being, and others thought they were going to be annihilated. But all, n- none of the guests had answered except Sir Roderick, who was a kind of a military type, but a very devout, pillar of the Church of England. He was the church warden, chief of the vestry in the local country parish. And the lady said, Sir Roderick, you haven't said a word. 
What do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Oh, he said, I am perfectly certain that I shall go to heaven and enjoy everlasting bliss, but I wish you wouldn't indulge in such a depressing conversation. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? Death in the Western world is a real problem. We hush it up. We pretend it hasn't happened. Our morticians, who are very smart commercial operators, know exactly what's expected of them. And they make death just awful by pretending it doesn't happen. See what happens. You go to a hospital and you're at the end. You've got terminal cancer. And all your friends come around and they wear false smiles and they say, cheer up, you'll be all right. Uh, in a few days from now, you'll be back home. We'll, we'll go out for a picnic again. The doctors, have their bedside man. You see, a doctor is absolutely helpless with a terminal case. Because he's a, a doctor's, by social definition, a healer. And he's not allowed to help you die. He's out of role. Even though, I mean, he may sneak behind the rules and do it. But, but he's definitely, he's got to heal you. So he's going to keep you indefinitely on the end of tubes and all kinds of things. While there's a certain grave demeanor to all this and all the nurses are so pleasant and so totally distant because they know this is death and they may be frank with you that's why they feel distant it's not that they're not concerned it's not that they're heartless people but that they just don't know how to be frank like lots of people when they meet a drunk they don't know what to do with a drunk uh, because uh, he's not behaving right. So, when you're dying, you're not behaving right. You're supposed to live. <laughs> See, so we don't know what to do with a dying person. We don't get around that person and say, listen, now listen, man, listen, I've got the news for you. You're going to die. And this is going to be great.
No more responsibilities. Don't have to pay those bills anymore. Don't have to worry about anything. You're going to just die. And let's go out with a bang. Let's have a party, see? We'll, 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 we'll put some, uh, some of that morphine in you so that you won't hurt too much. But we were going to prop you up in bed and we're going to bring all our friends around and we're going to have champagne. And you're going to, you're going to die at the end of it, see? And it's going to be just marvelous. Just like being born. When we had birth problems, see, all women used to think that birth had to be painful. It was good for them. It was one of the things you had to suffer because you'd been, you'd been screwing around with people and therefore you, <laughs> you had to have a child and it's got to hurt. And uh, then the doctors got together and they scratched their heads and the man called Granty Dick Reed said, no, birth doesn't hurt, it's natural. You know, all we've got to do is to talk these women into the idea that it doesn't hurt, that all these so-called pains are just tensions. And that uh, birth is great. It's not a disease. It's not really something you ought to go to hospital for. Because you associate hospitals with diseases and sickness. Birth isn't sickness. All right, now let's do some new thinking. What about death? Is death sickness? Or is it a healthy, natural event like being born? Of course it is. So, I mean, a little change in social attitude about this will fortify everybody else. I mean, I'm, if I'm alone and all my relatives are going, kind of <laughs> pretending to me it's going to be hard for me. I've got to challenge the whole bunch of them and get my dander up and say, listen, damn you, I don't want all this thing around here. You've got to take a different attitude about my death. Well, that's hard. But if everybody helps me, and we do, we're all one body. They all come around and say, congratulations, you're going to die. <laughs> Liberation. Liberation now, you see. Because just before you die, I mean, look, I know very well a skillful priest handling a person dying can do this for them. But he has to talk very, very, very straight. And he has to say, listen, these doctors, uh, you don't, don't you pay any attention to them. They're trying to amuse you and deceive you. You're going to die. This isn't terrible. But it's just going to be the end of you as a system of memories. And so you've got a great chance right now before it happens to let go of everything. Because you know it's going to go and it is going to help you. It's going to help you let go of everything. So if you have any possessions left, give them away. Give everything away.
And uh, if you have anything to say that is you felt that you ought to say before you die, and that you're kind of hanging on to and it's bothering you, say it. I mean, I don't mean necessarily a last confession, but say it said that Adlai Stevenson, shortly before he died, said that uh, he had been making a monkey of himself because he didn't agree with the government's policy about something or other. You know, he had to get that off his chest because he had a little thought in the back of his mind that things were catching up with him, you see? So the moment comes when this thing called death has to be taken completely, not as some ghastly accident, something that uh, all your friends are going to stay away because you're awful. I mean, sometimes people, when they die, are in a very unpleasant physical condition. They don't smell good, they don't look good, uh, and so on. But an enormous amount can be done with scientific methods to make things reasonably tidy from a purely sensory point of view. But the main thing is the attitude. That death is as positive as birth and should be a matter for rejoicing because death is the symbol of the liberation. There is a wonderful saying that Ananda Kumaraswamy used to quote, I pray that death will not come and find me still unannihilated. In other words, that man dies happy if there is no one to die. In other words, if the ego has disappeared before death caught up with it. But you see, the knowledge of death helps the ego to disappear because it tells you you can't hang on. What we need, uh, if, if we're going to have a, a good religion around, that's one of the places where it can start. Having, I don't know, well, nowadays I suppose they'd call it the institution for creative dying. <laughs> but something like that.
you can have you can have uh, one department where you can have champagne cocktail party to die with another department where you can have glorious religious rituals and priests and things like that another department where you can have uh, psychedelic drugs another department where you can have uh, special kinds of music uh, anything you know all, all, all these arrangements will be provided for in a hospital for uh, delightful dying uh, but that's the thing to go out with a bang instead of a whimper I remember the biggest joke on death I ever saw I mentioned this in my book we visited the Capuchin Friars crypt in the Via Veneto in Rome. Some of you may have seen it. Where there are three underground chapels where everything is made of bones. And uh, the altar is made of bones. The pedestals of the altar are all shin bones. And then there are piles of skulls and the decoration of flowers on the ceiling are ribs alternating with vertebrae. And the vertebrae are the flowers, and the ribs curl this way, curl this way, curl this way, the twining stems. And the whole thing is bones, and they have even a few full intact skeletons dressed in monk's robes standing on either side of these altars. It's the craziest thing you ever saw. And then when you have seen it and you come out, there is a little friar with a beard taking your offering at the top of the steps and he had a funny wicked gleam in his eye <laughs> and uh, one could see that this was a, a joke the whole thing was a joke it was constructed by people who had somehow overcome the fear of death fascinated by it because I thought that on the day of the resurrection there's going to be a tremendous scuffle <laughs> fitting all those bones together and everybody getting up the stairs for the last judgment <laughs> so if if uh, if it is seen uh, the death is the jest but the question is you see we are so tormented by the bugbear of it being the real end by the imagination of the possibility of being in the dark forever 
Now, you really must think this through because uh, it is a pure delusion. If you think, first of all, seriously about annihilation of consciousness, you will realize that annihilation of consciousness couldn't possibly be an experience. But being in the dark forever could be an experience. In supposing you were buried alive and somehow you were immortal, that you had to stay shut up in a tomb for always and always and always, that would be pretty grim. But the annihilation of consciousness is not an experience at all. There isn't anything there to be afraid of. So if that's what's going to happen, there's nothing to worry about, I assure you. But on the other hand, if you think about it longer, about uh, a state of eternal just not being at all, you know, you realize that nature abhors a vacuum. And that since, just as the universe happened once, it uh, could happen again. Since you were born once, you know, it did happen, really. Well, it can happen again. Only, uh, the, the next you won't remember the one now, just as the one now doesn't remember the one before. Not because you've forgotten, but as I pointed out yesterday, the fundamental what-have-you that underlies all this doesn't need a memory.
And so, uh, just in the same way, as you don't need to be conscious of the inner formations of your brain. Also, uh, I, I mean, here I'm, I'm talking speculatively. Also, there are curious connections where we don't see any. That is to say, the interval between events is not insignificant. Just as you don't hear melody unless you hear the interval between tones. It's the interval that counts. So in the same way, at blank intervals between successive manifestations of the universe and blank intervals between your forgetting who you are altogether and dying and someone suddenly becoming a baby. The blank intervals are not insignificant. Every painter knows, every architect knows that the space around an object or inside an object is just as important as the object. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.